0: Good evening, Good evening, everyone. Yeah, I hope you're well. Thanks for that prayer, it's lovely. Um, tonight, as Stephen has already said, we are going to be talking about communion. And we've been following the lead of a book on the Reformation um, called. Why the Reformation still matters? I think some of you went to the men's conference. Is that correct? Well, one of the guys who was at that uh, wrote one. Of, he's, there's two writers. He was one of the guys who wrote the book. So if you liked him, you liked the book. Um, and the chapter for tonight is on. It's actually on the sacraments, uh, but it only really discusses communion. In fact, it mentions baptism just once. So my sermon is almost going to exclusively focus on communion as well. And also, um, you know, I, I thought about making more of a deal of baptism, but I think to properly deal with it, you know, it would deserve a sermon on its own, so um, we're not going to do that. But if that disappoints you to hear that we're, on, we're not going to talk about baptism, well, the good news is that we have uh, the, behind the scenes here uh, recently been sorting out all of the sermons or trying to sort out the Kirkpatrick Sermon Archive, and all the sermons from about 2005... Um, we're going to slowly put them all back on the on the website and uh, there's a good bit of work to be done yet but we have uncovered one series that Christoph did about 2009 on baptism so if you're interested in that go to the website um and look for the series called understanding baptism it's a three part series Christoph did it um we're also Uh, recently back on the podcasts. if you've been looking for us uh, I've got confirmation that uh, you can search for us and you'll find it I don't think it only goes back to like maybe a year and a half ago so you won't find that baptism uh, sermon but if you're looking for other podcasts the Kirkpatrick podcast just look for it on any app and you should find it now that all said let me say this Um, I didn't plan this apparently Lord of the Rings is used quite a bit here in Kirkpatrick I'm going to start off with a Lord of the Rings uh, analogy. Let me uh, put up your hand if you have read the books. Read the Lord of the Rings books, part or any? Okay. Put up your hand if you have watched the films. Okay. How many have done both? Okay, right, a few. So the reason I ask you that is if a person watches the film and someone else reads the book, they will both have different experiences but they will get the same message of the series. Now I I know that some really nerdy types would take issue with that but I stand behind us. You would get the same uh, message of the series whether you watch the film or you read the book. And that's kind of what's happening with sacraments. In the same way that God speaks to us through his word, whether it's it's read or preached, he speaks to us through the sacraments. Except we don't hear God's word in a sacrament, we also see it acted out in front of us. Now, of course, it's different from a film in that we actually take part in it as well. But I think it's a good analogy nonetheless, because it's not just something that we a sacrament that is, it's not something that we just hear and feel, it's something that we see as well. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but in the, the Presbyterian Church's larger catechism, question 173, there's a whole section devoted just to what you should do when communion is happening. And half of what they say is just, look at what's happening, open your eyes. And one of the main things that we should do is just do that. Have a look around you. See what's going on. Look at what the minister is doing. Look at what your brothers and sisters are doing together. The Lord wants to use these visual physical metaphors to help us in our faith. But I'm um, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start off with a definition. What is a sacrament? Well, uh, uh, this is, I came up with this myself, so I might get some pushback on it. But a sacrament is a symbolic event that teaches us about God's promises that God has given us to strengthen our faith. A sacrament is a symbolic event that teaches us about the promises that God has given us to strengthen our faith. And I'm I'm not sure if actually you could find a text to support what I'm about to say, but I'm pretty sure that God gives us the sacraments because we're weak. Even for those of us who believe, it's it's not enough to just hear the truth. Sometimes it helps us to see something as well. Anyway, whatever about why he gave them to us, give them to us, he did. So firstly... Sacrament is a symbol. I know you might be surprised by me saying that. Um, Oh, I thought Protestants weren't into symbols. Didn't we get rid of them at the the Reformation? Apparently, if you go into Zwingli's church in Geneva, it's basically like a big shed. There's just four walls. There's nothing else in there. Someone can correct me on that. So there was definitely a a sense in which they got rid of everything visual, you know. But. Uh, we certainly did cut back in the amount of symbols that churches use. And we changed how we understand they work on us. And we'll get to that. But most Protestant churches are still very comfortable with symbols, including ourselves here in Kirkpatrick. And I've often wondered if, for instance, the 12 panels that are on the front of the organ uh, are meant to be symbolic of the 12 apostles. I don't know. If you follow me on Facebook or if you used to follow me on Facebook a couple of years ago, you'll know that I once asked what was the meaning of the, these, the windows here. Do you see these kind of things that look like flowers? What's the meaning of them? Well they actually mean nothing as it happens. Yeah, it's just a representation of a flower from the Art Deco period which was in vogue at the time that the windows were put in. However, whatever about the windows and, and the organ panels, there are some definite symbols in this building. Baptismal font over here um, is full of them. Uh, at the front, I've turned it around so you can see it. There's a dove coming down representing the Holy Spirit. And um, there's a lamb, I think, uh, there's a lamb here, actually, um, on, on the communion table. I think there's a lamb on the other side of the baptismal font. I can't, I can't remember. Um, and Jesus, of course, is the Lamb of God. The baptismal font, if you look at it, it's got eight sides. It's an octagon and a lot of basset baptismal fonts are in this shape for a couple of reasons is apparently an octagon is supposedly a circle that comes down on top of a square the circle represents heaven the square represents earth and so the baptismal font is where heaven comes down to earth right get it now those of you who know your theology might realize well that's actually a very high view of what's happening at baptism and that's why a lot of presbyterians don't have octagons they have just a plain circle right But don't worry, we have eight sides here. The number eight itself is supposedly used to symbolize certain things pertaining to baptism. For example, the eighth day of creation uh, is the restart of the cycle of life. So baptism is a sign of new life. Jesus rose from the dead eight, eight days after entering into Jerusalem. And baptism, of course, is a symbol of rebirth. And there's loads more symbols here. If you look at the communion table... You'll see carved into it, I hope. Uh, Actually you don't. Where did I see them? Oh, I saw them here. These are wheat sheaves and there's vines somewhere. I can't... Does anyone know where they are? I know I saw vines somewhere. Uh, It must be... My memory's bad, I apologise. There's vines somewhere uh, uh, carved in uh, around here somewhere. Um, and. Of course, the communion we drink the wine of the fruit of the vine and we eat bread that comes from the wheat. Now, those are both fairly straightforward symbols. One, however, that's not too straightforward is that pulpit up here. Pulpits up high because the preaching of the word is supposed to be the high point of Reformed worship. It's also positioned in the center because of the centrality of God's word to our life and our worship. Now, if you were to go to a Church of Ireland church, I'm sure many of you have, or into a Roman Catholic church, For them, the highlight of the service is not preaching, it's the communion, right? So um, the pulpit in those churches is over on the side of the church, and the communion table is in the center, and that's because they say that the preaching leads to the communion, right? See how it works? Let me say one more thing about symbols. Um, In a lot of Presbyterian churches, and it kind of happens here, not as much, the one, I was in Cork two weeks ago, and their pulpit is about maybe another five or six feet higher than that one. And the idea is that the pulpit and the table are in the center because communion and preaching are central to our understanding of group worship. right? And in the Presbyterian traditions, one of the reasons that the pulpit is higher is because it's supposed to be a clearer presentation of God's grace to us than we get in communion or in baptism. And I agree with that, but what I think I, I, I don't like is that it almost feels like communion and baptism and everything else we do is so far beneath preaching. Uh, reading the Bible, fellowshipping, singing, giving money. And these seem to have assumed, if you looked at the visual effect anyway, a very distant second to preaching. Now, don't get me wrong, I think that preaching of God's word is the high point, but it's not that much higher. Like when I went into the pulpit in Cork, it felt like I was just climbing into a rocket. You know? it, was, it was honestly, it was about 15 foot high. Now that's a personal opinion, but if I had my way, I, I would lower the pulpit a bit more. You know? And I think what we do here, it, it gets the message across great. So we have symbols in the church. I've banged on about that too much, actually. But there are symbols in the church. There are symbols in every church. But communion and baptism are not just symbols. They're symbolic acts. We do something at communion. We do something at baptism. At communion, we break bread, we share it, we eat it, and we also drink wine together. And this whole act has a purpose of communicating some of the more important promises of God to us. And just like all the symbols that I, I've been talking about there for the last few minutes, they communicate to us. And when they do, we use our brains, we think about what they mean, We think about how they look uh, or the look of them sorry the placement of them what that means and the sacraments do all that too but they go further because the sacraments you got to do something with them you got to act as well engages the body the mind the eyes everything so the sacrament is a symbolic act given to us by God to help us with our faith in a different way to just preaching and hearing God's word now, this series is about discovers, discoveries or rediscoveries that we made at the Reformation and why they are still important, if at all. And I'm sure you know, if you've ever been to uh, a Mass, that Roman Catholics have communion as well. Or they, don't, they don't usually, in fact, I don't think they do at all, give out the wine to the people. Only the priest drinks the wine. So there is that difference. But it does... Or it is, sorry, remarkably similar in, in many ways. Everyone queues up, gets their peace, uses the bread, just like we do. So, if we do the same thing, do we also believe the same thing is happening? No. Now, tonight, um, I will say this. It's a little bit different. Uh, in fact, it's very different, I think, from the other weeks. Because the other weeks, what we saw was that the, the, the three main reformers, anyway, Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, they were studying the Bible, studying God's word. And at certain key doctrines, they said that what the Roman Catholic Church had taught them does not match up with what they were reading. And the sacraments are a little bit different because, yes, the reformers went to the Bible. And they said, you know, this isn't teaching what the church is teaching us. But mostly, actually, they disagreed with the Catholic Church and communion, not just because what the Catholic Church said the Bible teaches, but more so because the Catholic Church's understanding of the sacraments were, were all wrapped up in their understanding of grace and justification. That was the real uh, difference. For the, the Catholic Church at the time, and still today, the sacraments are integral, to how one gets grace from God and how one is ultimately saved. Now, Mark, do you want to put up that thing? And Stephen, do you want to do what I was telling you about? Now, I know you haven't the clue what that is up there, right? Um, so I've got you a handout. Um, I've asked Stephen to give this out. I want to say, <clears throat> I think this is probably the best time to say, because I'm not, I'm not, I haven't written it down, so I'll just say this. I've been surprised at how at each sermon um, we, we we've had to make clear our differences bet- between us and our Catholic friends Catholic neighbors and I've I nearly every time that I've come up here I felt oh, this is more combative than I thought it would be so I'm gonna give you this out this is an, un- is a- an understanding of, of the Catholic way of viewing the Christian life and we do differ I wanna make it clear that My way of dealing with it is I look at the institution and I say, I disagree with the institution. If I meet a Catholic neighbour of mine and I'm talking to them, I say, look, this is where I'm at. I know what your church teaches. I can disagree with them. Can we be friends nonetheless? Can we talk about this without uh, getting into each other? I think that's the mature way. It's acknowledging that there's differences but not... um, Not denigrating each other. Now, that sheet that I've given you, I stand behind it. It's not mine, uh, but from what I've done over the years, I think it's an accurate portrayal of how the uh, Catholic Church sees the life of a Christian goes. And as you're looking at it, I want you to remember our times in the other parts of these series, where we looked at grace and justification. And on those nights, you'll know that. We differ from our Roman Catholic friends about what grace is and how we are saved. They were the two main differences. I mean they come from scripture, but practically it's grace and justification. They were the two big things. And for the Roman Catholic Church, grace acts it's like a substance that God gives from Himself to help us get to heaven. And as you can see from that, there's quite a lot of steps. There's a bit of back and forth. And that's what I like about this diagram. It makes really clear the way in which grace and the individual operate in a kind of codependent walk. You can't go one without the other. And the Catholic Church says that the Christian cooperates with grace. And so, in doing so, they earn this thing called merited grace. And that keeps them in a state of grace so that when they die, and after they go to purgatory, they'll go to heaven. Now protestants of all stripes disagree almost entirely with all of that um, grace is not a thing from God it's not something separate to him because for us grace is the presence of God himself fully in our life when we have grace we don't need to earn salvation when God comes into our lives we are saved that's it and our lives afterwards are led in a response to what he has done and out of, sense, out of a sense for the love of his laws. But that response is not a part of our salvation. Now, why do I say that at all? <clears throat> because, as I said, the sacraments were an integral part of the system. And communion for Catholics is and was a means of getting more grace. The Catholic Church at the time still does, has seven sacraments. And each one is a way of giving the person more grace so that they can stay in this system that I've shown you and hopefully earn salvation. So you can see how the reformers would react to this. For them, the problem wasn't so much the sacraments, it was rather the system of which the sacraments were a big part. And when saying all that, don't get me wrong, they did disagree with the teaching on them, but the bigger context is what I want you to really see here. And the bigger context was that they were a part of the system of grace and salvation which the reformers disagreed with. This disagreement with which went to the heart of why there was a reformation at all. So as I see it from my reading, there was two main issues with the Catholic Church, their, sorry, their teaches, teaching on sacraments. And as we go through these, you'll, you'll get a bit, bit, bigger picture of where we are ourselves. And that's where I want to end tonight. Um, again, really, I'm not here to just tear into the Catholic Church. I want to talk about what we believe. But the first thing that they disagreed with, the Reformers, that is, with the Catholic Church, they said that communion, Catholic Church this is, said that communion worked irrespective of whether you believed it or not. There was a lot more emphasis on whether the priest did the ceremony correctly than on the person receiving the communion. And in response, the reformers said, no, 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 no. If the sacraments are about God's promises to us, then they are only effective if we believed in the promises attached to them. You've got to believe in what's going on, said the reformers. That's the crucial ingredient. But for the Catholic Church, the effectiveness of communion was made Better if you believed in the promises. It was made better if you meditated on them whilst you took it. But ultimately, your lack of understanding, your lack of thought about what was happening at the moment, these things did not affect the power of the sacrament itself. And I'm sure you can imagine um, the problems that might come to mind here. And indeed, in my own time going to Mass, we were encouraged to take it seriously. But most of all, we were just encouraged to take it. The second thing the reformers disagreed with was what was happening during the communion. Now here, you know, Stephen's already flagged this up. (coughs) The reformers themselves uh, disagreed between themselves in their response. You know, the big disagreement was what's going on in communion. And I'm actually not going to talk about that debate at all, really. I will talk a little bit about what Presbyterians have concluded on this. But I do want to spend a bit more time on what the Catholic Church uh, teaches, mainly because uh, it's interesting, um, but also a lot of people ask me about this. Um, If I had one, probably number one question people ask me about the Catholic Church, it's this. The Catholic Church teaches that the bread and wine transubstantiates into the body and blood of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me ask you a strange question. Um, What is a chair? Is it a wooden thing that has to have four legs and a back? Uh, Well, some chairs have three legs. Some are plastic. Is it something that you sit on? And I could sit on the communion table, right? Or lean against it, and, you know? So it's not that either. So what's a chair? Well, Wikipedia says it's a piece of furniture with a raised surface supported by legs mostly used to help seat a single person. But even with that fine definition, you can see questions still remain. What is furniture? How high is the raised surface supposed to be? There are also other questions, like, uh, you know, it mostly seats a single person. Could it be for more than one? I'm being a bit smart, right? Because the thing is, we all know what a chair is. That's a chair. And if if we saw one, I'm going to guess 99 times out of 100, we'd all agree, that's a chair. And yet there are still problems in trying to define it. So what's going on? Well, what's happening here is I'm trying to show you a very old and uh, philosophical and abstract problem. If you want to look it up, it's called the problem of the universals. The issue at hand is how do you explain what something is? Well, the second you start labeling a thing, then you can be asked, well, what's, what's that label? And if you define that, you can ask the same question again and again and again. And in a response, philosophers essentially came up with two answers, right? So take the chair again. One crowd came along and they said, "That's a chair. We all know it's a chair. Everyone knows it's a chair. I'm going to call it a chair." And the other crowd came along and said, "Oh, really? So you're you're going to call it a chair? So what's to stop you from calling it a duck?" And this crowd were like, mm, "Yes, that's a fair question. But it is a chair. So you know, how do you know it's a chair?" And these lads said, "Yes." Well, we know it's a chair because it has an inherent chairiness quality. And this crowd were like, really? That's your answer? Well, where is this chairiness quality? Where's this? In- I can't see it. And these lads said, yes, I know it's kind of abstract, but it probably exists somewhere out there, or maybe it exists in the mind of God. And that's essentially where the debate has landed. They're still talking about this. So you can either say that that is a chair because I say it is, and you can imagine there might be some problematic things with that philosophy, or you can say there exists somewhere in the universe, or maybe even in the mind of God, a thing called chairiness, and this object has it. And the Catholic Church, still today, came down on this side, they said that things have an inherent quality to them. And they called it the substance. And they said that during communion, after the priest had said the right words, the bread and the wine, the visible and the touchable parts, they don't change, but the substance changes. And it changes into the body and blood of Jesus. And that's where they get transubstantiation from. Now I hope you can see why it fits with their understanding of grace because if grace is something from god that helps you to live the christian life well as soon as the priest has said the right words and you take the communion into you you just got some grace it's a very physical kind of spirituality in a way and i suppose that's a part of the appeal of it for some people anyway now the reformers had no time for this And by the way, don't, you know, maybe the way I've portrayed it there makes it feel like this is a a kind of a silly argument. These lads over here have serious problems. Um, You can read up about it, do read up about it. But the reformers had no time for this. And as I said, they disagreed amongst themselves on what to do. And in fairness to the Catholic Church, they're just trying to make sense of Jesus' words. Because Jesus says at the Last Supper, which is where we get our communion uh, service or act from, he holds up the bread and the wine, and he said, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, how could bread be his body? And how could wine be his blood? Well, let me tell you, as I said, I'm not going to go into the huge debate about what they said, but I will tell you where our forefather, Mr. Calvin, landed What he said was, you don't need to take this phrase literally. Jesus says in other places, he's divine. He says he's a rock. The Bible is comfortable with metaphorical language to describe Jesus. We certainly don't think Jesus is a plant or an inanimate lump of rock. And besides, says Calvin, if you're going to be so strictly literate, how does his body and blood exist separately? And also, Calvin points out, that Jesus says he has left and he will send us the Spirit. Jesus is not with us in body and flesh anymore. So, what was happening? Well, according to Calvin, he agreed with Zwingli that communion is a time of reflecting. This is what Zwingli said of reflecting on the Lord's death and the promises of the new covenant. It was a time to remember. But he disagreed with Zwingli and said there was more to it than just that. More to, more to it than just a time to remember Jesus. He agreed with the Catholic Church when they said that communion affects us. And make no mistake, I think particularly evangelicals see communion as something that is dependent on what we're thinking. And that's true, that's true, don't get me wrong but it's not just an intellectual uh, stirring up exercise. Something spiritual happens at communion. And Calvin taught that by the power of the Holy Spirit we really do encounter the living Jesus when we take communion in a way that we don't at other times in the Christian walk. And by the way, there's an inference here that is fair to take, fair to make I should say, and it's this. If during communion we are in some way connected to our Lord in a way that we are not at other times and we are also simultaneously more connected to our brothers and sisters at that moment than we are at any other moment. So you know Christians share a bond of the Holy Spirit. Well if the Holy Spirit uses communion to draw us closer to Christ then we are closer to each other too. And that's one reason least one reason why we are asked to examine ourselves if there's anything, any sin between us before we go and take communion. Because at that moment the community is closer than ever is. So that's what Calvin said. I want to end, I going to try and end with this sermon something more practical I suppose. I know that some of you you want to guess mostly this side of the room, but there could be some over here as well, that haven't become communicants yet, and uh, I should say that's coming up in a, uh, about two or three months, is it, two or three months? Two months. And the reason that you don't just automatically do it, there is a barrier, or you have to make a decision, at least one of the reasons, is that we only want people to become a communicant when you are ready Publicly acknowledge. To st- you've got to stand up here, and we have a list of vows. But behind it, there's this. I suppose there's a sense that you've got to be ready to say, for yourself, three things. You've got to acknowledge that three things are true: one past event, one current event, and one future event. Let me put it to you like this, right? The first communion was during the week that Jesus died. Um, or maybe the last Passover I don't know if it's fair to say the first communion but anyway it was a Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with the apostles and the very first Passover took place after a battle between the most powerful superpower of the world at that time the Pharaoh of Egypt and the most powerful being in the universe Yahweh the great I Am They clashed. God sent plague after plague to this man who was holding God's people slaves. And each time he said, yeah, go. And then he relented. He changed his mind. And then finally God said, right, I'm going to send you, the angel of death. I will send him, God said, to destroy every last one of the firstborn in this land, even the animals. But I will make provision for my people... This is what you're to do. I want you to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of it, mark the doorposts of your home, and when I send the angel of death, whenever he sees the mark of the lamb, he will pass over that place. And no harm will come upon my people who've trusted me. And then he told them, I want you to eat that lamb. Prepare it in a certain way. Mix it with bitter herbs to remind you of the Hard time that you had when, you were a, when your whole nation was a slave I want you to get wine to celebrate the freedom that I'm going to give you I want you to get clothes ready that are tucked in nice and light so you're prepared to flee and go to the promised land he did not want them to forget this big event they had to celebrate it every day single year about how they were rescued by the Lord but then oh, 2000 years odd later 2000 Passovers later the week comes to Jesus having to die he spent three years with the boys wandering around Israel doing his thing and then he knows what's coming next. He knows what's coming next. So he wants to celebrate with his friends one more time. So he says, you've got to go get a room, get all the gear ready, get the wine, the bread. And then he told them, I'm never going to do this with you again until the kingdom of God comes. And then just at the last moment, when he's, in, he's, do, he's looking like he's going to do a Passover, he changes the liturgy. He switches it up. He says we have a new covenant and this new covenant is in my blood and in my body. No longer are you going to be relying on the blood of bulls or goats. No longer are you going to have to sacrifice every year because we have got a new covenant. A once for all covenant. And every time that you do communion I want you to remember us. I rescued you. You're forgiven of everything. You are now free. You're not heading, you are now, sorry, heading to the promised land. And one day I'll meet you there and we're going to eat this meal together. Christoph told me, I think he's told me a few times actually, that if at all possible, I shouldn't let my new congregation do communion on Easter Sunday. Unless you're very careful. Because it'll nearly always be badly done. You see, friends, right? This meal, this enacted thing that we get to look at and be reminded of what's happening it's looking back at Easter Sunday. But sorry, on Easter Sunday, we don't just look back at the Friday. So a lot of people, I think that's what happens. All their concentrators on Good Friday. But on Easter Sunday we don't just look back at Friday we do look at it but then we thank God that it's Sunday and then we stand on that day forgiven because of what happened on Friday and we also look forward as we talked about this morning to the day when he comes back and at communion that's what we do too right so you look at what number one the past what Jesus has done Number two, no, I am free. But number three, there's another day coming. And that's what the symbols of communion present to us. So look around you at communion. You'll see the people of God, your people, your family, your forever family. And as real as that bread is in your mouth is the reality of your forgiveness, your total utter and forever forgiveness of all your sins as real as the wine is in your throat you stand now free and headed to the promised land and by the power of the Holy Spirit as you think upon these things you will be in the presence of God so if you want to be a communicant and if you are ready to do that well then come and join us Because that's what we want to do at communion. That's what I hope we do at communion. That's it.